Howdy folks, today we are going to be talking about 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 23. I want to remind you about who we're talking to and what about. You ought to really go back if you've not been following the podcast and go back and start at chapter 1 and verse 1. At the very least, if this is you jumping into the podcast on this series, at the very least, read 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2 and verse 20. But just to remind us, for those that have been following along, Peter, as an apostle, as an elder in a congregation, is writing to saints who have been scattered throughout various areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, etc., He's writing them to encourage them to look forward to the hope that is in front in the resurrection. Because, 1 Peter 1 and verse 7, they're going through a trial of their faith, looking forward to the end, looking forward to the result of faith in the end, the salvation of their souls. They're being told in this letter to be holy as God is holy, to continue in the obedience that they have shown looking to our Father who judges without respect of persons, reminding them that they've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ who was appointed before the foundation of the world to come and be sacrificed and to die, reminding them that they've been born again of the incorruptible seed, the word of God, telling them to lay aside everything like malice and guile, and that fits into what we're going to talk about somewhat today, and to desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow, to reminding them that they are lively stones, that they are supposed to be a chosen generation living as such, living as a peculiar people who, who ought to show forth the praises of them, of him rather, that called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, reminding them as primarily Gentiles are addressed in this epistle that they once weren't the people, but now they are the people of God. And that comes with a responsibility to live in such a way that if somebody is to bring a charge against them as evildoers, their good works would speak louder than that charge. Then in the immediate context, to submit themselves to the authority of men. And it's broken down like this in the context that we're studying from. To be in subjection to the authority of governors uh, or to the king for those men that have that authority and not to use freedom in Christ as a way to be malicious, as a cloak of maliciousness, but to be submissive, to honor all, to love the brotherhood, to fear God, to honor the king. And then, and what we talked about last week in verses 18 through 20, for servants to be subject to their masters and not only to those masters that would be good and that would be gentle, but also to those masters that would be forward. And what that means is those that would be crooked or untoward in some sort of a way. So it's, hey, obey those that have authority over you, even though they may not be honorable, good people in themselves. And we know, or we ought to know as Christians, 
living in this world that generally speaking, most people that we are in contact with are evil outside the body of Christ. And unfortunately, sometimes there's Judas's among us, even in the body of Christ. But the world lieth in wickedness, 1 John 5 and verse 19. So this should not be a new thought for anybody who has studied through the text. And what we wrapped up with in our lesson last week in verse 20 is if you are buffeted for your own faults, meaning, hey, you know what? If somebody has come and brought violence to you and you deserve it, what reward is in, in that if you endure? But rather, and this is huge, rather, if you suffer for doing well, endure that because that is acceptable unto God. And that, that word that is, is translated there as patiently in the King James Version is to have fortitude, to endure, to suffer. And again, if you are a Christian and you have been taught and studying the Word of God, you know that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. And as we go through the New Testament, we see that over and over again in saints in the first century. And if you're living faithfully in this world, and I know the violence that we experience here in the United States of America is nothing to be compared to what saints went through of old. But to some degree, you should have, if you've been a Christian for some period of time and you've been in contact with this world, suffered something. If nothing else, the words and attacks of men. If not, you really, really, really need to examine your faithfulness to God. Really do. I, I don't know how you can shine as a light in a dark world and not go through something because of that. And that's based on what the scriptures teach us. So today, when we're going to look at verses 21 through 23, the inspired apostle Peter, through the Holy Spirit, is going to use Jesus as an example of someone who endured suffering in a way that is acceptable unto God, endured suffering at the hands of evildoers, endured suffering for something that he did not deserve, and how he went through that, what he did in response to that. As we study the Bible, there is behavior that is profitable, or not, not only profitable, but appropriate for Christians. You know, just to give you kind of an idea of what I've got in mind by using that phrase, in Romans 16, 1 and 2, says, I commend you to Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that you assist her in whatsoever business she have need of you, for she have been a succor of many of myself also, a succor of many of myself also. Look, look, Phoebe here, the saints in Rome, you're to receive her as becometh saints. To the saints in Ephesus, Ephesians 5, 3 through 5 says, but fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That language there, right? As becometh saints. 
both there to the saints in Rome and to the saints in Ephesus. There is appropriate behavior that as becometh saints that people ought to see in us. And we know how to conduct ourselves because the gospel teaches us that. In Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Only let your conversation as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So to put this into application, I used an example last week where Onesimus was going to be returned to Philemon. And Philemon is his master, receive him as a brother, was the words that was expected of him. Well, if Paul comes and finds Philemon abusing Onesimus, then he's not conducting himself as become a saint. On the flip side of that coin, if he comes and finds Onesimus taking advantage of his relationship in Christ with Philemon, then he's not behaving as becometh saints because both are to live in accordance with the roles that God had given them and what position they find themselves. Folks, a Christian's conduct is supposed to be a worthy conduct. Worthy in what way? Well, Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore the prison of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. So as we look at the wording there, worthy of the vocation, that is the calling. And we're going to talk about that in, in 1 Peter 2.21, for even there to were ye called, well, we're to walk worthy of that calling. It fits very much into what we're going to talk about today. In other words, Colossians 1 verse 10 says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God, or to the saints in Thessalonica, it was written in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, that you walk, walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. We're to have a worthy conduct, a worthy walk. And the scriptures teach us that, right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2, furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So the writing, the teaching of God that we have, like they have, teaches us how to walk and please God. We can also look at the conduct of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to use this cautiously. Um, there are people that call themselves Christians, and they may have been immersed into Christ. They may be members of the congregation, etc., etc. That doesn't mean they're always acting as they ought to act. You ought to know this if you're a student of the scriptures. When you look at the book of Acts, there were people in Antioch that went, or people went down from Judea into Antioch. They were members of the congregation uh, in Judea. They were sent out, or not sent out, but went out from among the saints to the saints, but they didn't behave themselves appropriately. They taught something that was false. We have to be cautious. Uh, to the church in Corinth, they had a fornicator among them and were warned, a little leaven left the whole lump in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It, you got to be cautious, right? You got to know who you're following by their fruit, Matthew 7, 15 through 20. With that qualifier, there are people that are examples. Paul, when he wrote the Corinthians, said in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of of me. Now, somebody might say, okay, but that's just an apostle. And of course, we're to follow the examples of the apostles. Hey, not always. The apostle Peter, though he obviously makes this right in his life, 
wasn't always a good example to follow. In Matthew 16, 21 through 23, he was told by Jesus, get thee behind me, Satan, right? In Matthew chapter 26, Peter in verses 69 through 75 denied Jesus three times. When we come to Galatians chapter two, and these, this isn't the whole list either. Peter's failed at other points in time, but just in brief, when we come to Galatians two, we find that the apostle Paul had to oppose Peter in front of others, Galatians 2, 11 through 17, because when certain brethren who were of Jews or certain Jews came from James, uh, so forth, so on, there was a difference in how Peter uh, reacted. He would react with Gentiles one way, but when others came, he withdrew and separated himself insomuch that Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So we got to be careful who we're following. And it's not just apostles. And even the apostles didn't always leave the example that ought to be followed. As always, the standard is the will of God, not men, no matter who those men were, aside from Jesus Christ. Even though, besides apostles, in Titus 2, verses 2 through 8, we read Paul writing here to the evangelists that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. The aged women likewise, they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that they that he is the contrary part may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. So when we look at the scriptures there, right? the scriptures being the standard, but look at other people who are living in accordance with the scriptures, make sure it's always lined up and look at their examples as well. Now, unfortunately, some people don't know how to examine fruit like we're told to do in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, and they end up following the wrong people under destruction because they're not living by the word of God. That's the ultimate standard, right? Making sure that what we're saying and doing is in accordance with the authority of Christ, Colossians 3 and verse 17, that we get by having the word of God dwell in us, Colossians 3, 16. So we want to measure things appropriately and correctly. With all of that set forth as introductory thoughts, I've already preached a sermon, haven't I? As a matter of fact, 15 minutes in, I've seen sermons shorter than 15 minutes, but those are introductory thoughts. Our text is 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Let's break this down. We already talked about in brief, right, when we were looking at the scripture in Ephesians 4 and verse 1, already talked about called. Well, how are we called? If you're a student of the scriptures, 
you're not caught up by this phrase. We know that the false religious world has all kinds of craziness that they throw in the biblical terminology. And the word called or calling is one of those words. But simply put, 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, Weren't you, he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are called by the gospel. So here to you are called because Christ suffered for us. We have the opportunity to be called by the gospel because Christ suffered for us. 1 Peter 3.18 that we're going to get to in the next chapter. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So in context, that 1 Peter 2.20 verse that we've talked about, what glory is it when you be buffeted for your faults? You shall take it patiently, but if you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable to God. Jesus' suffering is what we are called unto in this context, right? Context matters. We talk about being called in different contexts for different things, different purposes. In this context, it's suffering for doing right. If we have been called, that is part of what being a Christian is about. In Acts 14, 22, they were confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. In Romans chapter 8, chapter contrasting the physical carnal law in chapter 7 and the spiritual in chapter 8, Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, we may be glorified together. We are called to suffer with him because he suffered for us. So even if it be at the hand of those that would abuse the authority that they have in this world over us, we still need to be willing and able to suffer for the sake of Christ. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.29 says, For unto you it is given in this behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. That ties this context together beautifully. What if civil authorities were in the position to persecute you like the Roman Empire did to Christians in the first century? What if? Well, I'm going to suffer as a servant of God. Who am I going to look to as an example for that? I'm going to look at what Jesus did, right? Figuratively speaking, it's like what Paul said, and as the some of the language we've been talking about already— Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Now, that's not literal. That's a figurative phrase, right? Paul's still alive. It's similar to take up your cross and follow me. Paul's still alive, but he's suffering. So he says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm going to endure Whatever it is that man does to me, looking unto Jesus, seeing what he went through and how he endured and what the end result was for him. We'll talk about that later in our lesson. Now, this we know. Jesus is our example. That's where the, the, the language is for, and that ties us back to verse 20, even here too, where you called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. 
Now, there would be those that would say, but that was Jesus' place to suffer. It is yours as well, not for sins, not as a sacrifice to God, but the Christian life is not a walk in the park. There is suffering at the hands of evildoers, at the mouths of evildoers, at and under the authority of government, by those that have authority over us, where I'm a member of the congregation, aside from suffering, I've gone through many, many times for the sake of the gospel. I have a brother here, for example, just to use one of many examples that I could use, that was fired from his job several years ago at a hospital because he chose to worship God when they would not give him the day off. He suffered for the sake of Christ. Folks, living faithful is going to put you in harm's way, like it did Jesus. That's an example, right? Aren't we supposed to walk as he walked? 1 John 2, 3 through 6, hereby we do know him, or hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected, hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abide in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Now, earlier, I said we follow the examples of others and gave Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.16. Notice the qualifier that Paul gives later in that same letter. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ. I like to think of this in a way that illustrates it. If I'm following a man who uh, is godly, can I look out in front of him in line and see Jesus? Whose footsteps am I really following here? Or is he just putting on some sort of performance and getting me to follow the devil? I want to know who's leading that line because those that sin are of the devil, 1 John 3, 8 through 10. I want to make sure the devil's not up front. He appears in one way, and this is all figurative language, figur figurative uh, illustration I'm giving, but Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. So maybe somebody's been duped into following someone evil who's really following the example of Satan. I need to make sure I know who's at the head of that line because where they're leading you is not the same place. You don't go to heaven by following the devil. Now consider the tie of the suffering of Jesus and sinlessness, which applies to our lesson. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh of the lust of men, but to the will of God. If you're willing to suffer for Jesus, you're going to hang in there. You're not going to give up so much and go through so much just to follow sin under eternal damnation, right? The sinless example of Jesus and suffering are therefore tied together. Let's think about that. Following his steps, who did no sin. Jesus is and was and always will be sinless. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, 
Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Similarly, if you look later in the book of Hebrews, two other contexts, Hebrews 7, 26-28, continues talking about him as a high priest, says, For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests offered sacrifice first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered of himself. For the law men... The law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, folks. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation our sinless example in Jesus, in whom did no sin, neither was guile, which means deceit, in his mouth, like was prophesied. Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, prophesying about the death of Christ, said in verse 9, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He's not deceptive. He didn't do any violence. And, and the reason he's not deceptive is he, he's the man of truth. He's the word. He is the truth, right? John chapter one, verse 17 says, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14 and verse six, no man comes to the father, but by him. So we follow that example in all that he has said and done. In first John three, five through six, you know that he, contextually speaking of Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him, in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now that may blow away some people's minds. You mean I'm supposed to be like Jesus and not speak deceit? I'm supposed to be sinless? Yes, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. When we get into 1 Peter 3, we're going to see in verse 10, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. As far as conduct goes, sinless conduct, that in itself covered throughout the New Testament in ways that is unmistakably clear. There was an adulterous woman who was caught in the very act of adultery in John chapter 8. And they brought him unto Jesus thinking that he would have her to be stoned to death because of what the law of Moses uh, taught. And, you know, according to the law of Moses, they had the right to do that. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. So Jesus told them, him that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. Of course, they all walked away. They were convicted by their own conscience. So Jesus did not stone her. He asked her where her accusers were in John 8 and verse 10. She said that there was none. So Jesus told her in verse 11, this instruction, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. For those people that say that's unreasonable, it's impossible. 
What are you accusing Jesus of? There are people that would use grace as a license to continue in sin. And the scriptures explicitly condemn that false doctrine. In Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The Corinthians, in a context about the resurrection where they were getting it wrong, some of the people in Corinth were getting it wrong. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Folks, for those that would use the gospel of Jesus Christ to justify a continuation of sin, a non-ceasing of sin, you're making Jesus the minister of sin. And to that is a God forbid in Galatians 2 and verse 17. It says, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Paul told Timothy the evangelist in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 1 John 3 covers this subject very clearly, excellently, in ways that are unmistakable. While we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, verse John 2 and verse 1, you know what that verse says? My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. That's the instruction. Now, if you do sin, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that takes you back to chapter 1, where instead of denying sin, you're to confess it, verses 8 through 10. And Jesus, in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, being our advocate, will be the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but the whole world's. But the instruction is, sin not. As I brought up earlier, if you sin, then you're a child of the devil, 1 John 3, 8 through 10. As 1 John 5 comes to, the letter comes near its conclusion, we know in verse 18, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. You cannot mistake that. When somebody starts to play games with those words, listen, look at the New Testament over and over again. Commands you to be righteous, to conduct yourself in sinless ways. People will say, ah, nobody can be perfect. And that word simply means complete or whole, Greek word teleos. If I remember that correctly, you might want to double check that. But be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. And I know preachers play games with the words. Oh, that doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that. It means completeness. Yes. If you go to the doctor and you're in perfect health, that means you're in complete health. It's unbelievable how when people open a Bible, Words they use all, all the time, all of a sudden don't mean what they actually say. But they do in every other way. Come on, folks. Come on. Come on. You can get that. You can understand it. Children of God follow the example of Jesus. What's the example of Jesus? Sinless. Not speaking guile. Says... When he was reviled, that means vilified or reproached, he did not respond in the same way. 
I want you to think back to what Jesus endured and what he went through. In Matthew 27, 11 through 14, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, thou sayest. And who is accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? That tells us there's more than what is written here, right? And he answered him never a word, insomuch the governor marveled greatly. Later in that chapter, verse 39 through 44, they passed by, reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. You know what, folks? Jesus went through it. He didn't hang there on the cross and give some kind of argumentation back. He just suffered through it. In Luke 22, 64 and 65, they blindfolded him. They struck him on the face and that same prophesy. Who is it that spake thee? And many other blasphemously, blasphemously spake they against him. But he didn't come back with threats. He didn't try to answer them in some kind of crazy way. He wasn't deceptive. Think about in Luke 23, 33 through 37, when they were coming to the place which is called Calvary, they crucified him. The mouth actors, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots, and the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with him derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, offering him vinegar, and said, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. He did not return these words to them. And it wasn't that he was unable if you'll remember when he was betrayed in you know, the context of Matthew 26, 47 through 56, Jesus pointed out to them when, when Peter would have defended him and fought and cut off Malchus's ear, etc. He tells him to put up his sword. He's not asking for defense. He's not asking for a physical self-defense that... He could have argued that he had the right to, but he's being persecuted. He's being put to death. He said in Matthew 26, 53, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? Look, Jesus came to die on the cross. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. That's what he said in verse 54. He didn't want to prevent what was happening to him. And he was capable. When you look at what Jesus could do, even the winds and the sea obey him. Matthew 8, verse 27. But he didn't in any way try to defend himself, to show his might and his power. Here's the king of kings submitting himself to unjust men to be punished for doing nothing. 
This is the example that the Holy Spirit has Peter write for us to learn from. Don't try to get around it. It is what it is. Saints who are faithful, and I know, again, we might not in current right now, 2024 that's just begun, be facing in the United States of America or in a lot of other places of the world the level to any degree at which the apostles and first century Christians and Jesus faced. But to some degree, if you're living faithful, even if it's just people's words, you're going to suffer through something. If not, what are you doing wrong? Ought to be the question. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, say all, all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now when we go through, however small or large level of persecution we may face, whether it be at the hands of those in authority over us or not, the example of Jesus, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, is not to repay evil with evil. And the scriptures teach that abundantly clear. In Romans 12, 17, and we read this few weeks back, recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Another verse I used in that same lesson, verse 5, 15, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. And we're going to talk about it again in the very next chapter of 1 Peter, in chapter 3, verse 9. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrawise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. If somebody does something to me because I am a Christian... I am not to respond with violence. I'm not to respond with guile in my mouth. I'm not to threaten them. I'm not to seek revenge. Now for people to wrap that around their minds sometimes is difficult. But it is abundantly scripturally clear Think of the apostles who had miraculous abilities. When James, the brother of John, was beheaded, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, or I should say killed with the sword, when he was killed, he had miraculous abilities. He could have called fire down from heaven or something, right? But he didn't. He didn't. The times that Paul was beaten, cast into prison. I mean, there's a time in Acts 14 that Jews came from Antioch, verse 19 in Iconium, and they persuaded the people and they stoned Paul, took him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. That tells you to what degree his injuries were. Paul didn't defend himself. You know, the apostles had rights given to them by Jesus. 
They had rights to have swords. Luke 22, right? Verse 38, in that context, uh, 36 through 38, Paul didn't use a weapon or his miraculous abilities. And somebody might say, well, he couldn't have used his miraculous abilities for something like that. Yes, he could have. He could have, folks. He did, in fact. Do you recall? And I think it's in Acts chapter 13. Do you recall that there was a sorcerer named Elymas? Yeah, yeah I, I'm, it's Acts 13 and verse 11. And, and Paul said, The hand of the Lord was upon them, and he was blind, seeing, not seeing the sun for a season. Miraculous abilities were used not just to heal, but here to inflict injury. But Paul didn't use his miraculous abilities any more than Jesus to answer persecution or as a method or tool, weapon of defense. Rather, as the text says about Jesus, when he reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, meaning he delivered himself to the righteous judge. I, it just brings to my mind the language of Luke 23, 46. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. There it is. He surrendered himself to the Father. When we get later in 1 Peter, guess what? 1 Peter 4, 17 through 19 the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what should then be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God, there's your qualifying statements, commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Not turn and go get your vengeance. Vengeance is not ours to take. When the saints in Thessalonica were being persecuted, 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 9 says, so that we ourselves glory in, in the churches of God for your patience and faith, or in other words, uh, what they went through, what they've endured, and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, seeing is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. This is what you're supposed to do. This is the committing of your soul to your creator point. Rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, and flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Listen, rest with him. Let vengeance be his. Don't seek to get him back. Don't seek to go find some way to harm those that are harming you. In Hebrews 10, 30 through 31, we know him that said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Listen, nothing you can do to man, to unjust people that would harm you, 
then will what will be anywhere near eternal damnation. If nothing else, that makes me sorry. Feel terrible for what those people that have done harm to me are going to face in eternity for it. And like Jesus and Stephen, I pray. And you ought to too, not have a vengeful attitude, but mindful that those are lost souls. We see that example in Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they would do. We see that in Stephen in Acts 7. Hope that this world stands long enough for those people to be able to repent and obey the gospel and have their sins washed away, like the Apostle Paul, who persecuted Christians, but then obeyed the gospel in Acts 9 and was washed in water, Acts 22, 16, by the blood of Christ, Revelation 1, verse 5, to have those past sins washed away and became the apostle that we all love. We ought to wish that upon our enemies. But rather than be vengeful, prayerful, and rather than take it into our own hands, leave it into the hands of our Lord. Jesus being the example, think about the Hebrew writer said in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. After, after a great chapter, I mean, man, just back up and read Hebrews 11 and then go into chapter 12. I mean, think about what those in times past uh, went through, how through faith uh, they, they quenched the violence of fire and the sword and, and how they had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings and bonds and imprisonments, how they were stoned and sawn asunder, how the world was not worthy for them and how we have a promise that they didn't even fully understand like we've talked about in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Then you come into chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Wherefore, looking back on Hebrews chapter 11, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Wow. Wow. Jesus is our example. If the government oppresses us, you know, in American history, there have been many times where the U.S. government has taken people's property from them where local governments have taken people's property from them. Uh, you know, you think back to what the Indians in America, Native Americans endured. Just terrible things, horrific things at the hands of our government who wanted their land and took it. And what'd they do? Here, we'll give you a reservation. Go build a casino. That's terrible. But if those were Christians, rather than taking up weapons, they would endure it. Think about, I think it was in the 1940s in the state of Washington. The government decided they wanted to build a nuclear plant. They told everybody that resided in the city, get out. They wanted to use the river that ran through that town, wanted to build a nuclear plant. Get out, leave. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to take up arms. Not if you're a Christian. You're going to endure. You're going to suffer through it. 
The government's abusing their authority. Yes. Yes. But everything in this world is going to perish anyway. Be burned up. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 14. Your citizenship is above. You are a higher citizen of a higher kingdom. Philippians 3 and verse 20. You're going to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You're going to commit the keeping of your soul to your faithful creator, and you're going to endure. If we were to be put into slavery, into bondage by some invading force, rather than taking up arms and forming the Christian militia, we're going to suffer through it. And we're going to look into eternal life. And that is what these saints are being taught. And Jesus is the example set before them. We're going to pick up next week and talk about verses 24 and 25. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but now return to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. I wanted to separate these verses because though the context is not going to change, again, like I mentioned last week, chapter 3 continues with submission as the Christian woman is going to be told to submit to her non-Christian husband and to conduct herself in a way that is above reproach. Context isn't going to change, but I do love the wording of verses 24 and 25, and I, I'm not going to use it a, a, in a way that's going to abuse the context, but just look and break it down because it's beautiful in the midst of this context to be reminded, to be reminded that we are dead to sins that we're healed by Christ. That, that simile, as sheep going astray, we're returned to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. I want to talk about that in, in more length than if we squeezed it into this lesson. So I hope you'll bear with me there and I hope you'll enjoy it and are looking forward to it. Hope this lesson has been beneficial unto you. It is not my teaching. It's the teaching of our Lord. And if you were to find yourself in such a position, to be abused by those in authority over us. You'd have to obey it if you plan on being saved because that is who Jesus will save. He's the source or author of salvation to those that obey him. Hebrews chapter five and verse nine. I will leave this lesson there. I thank you so much for listening and for your continued listening to these podcasts. Would always love to get some feedback from you. If you could, drop me a line at some point or give me a call at some point. Thank you so much for listening. If all goes according to plan, I'll be back on Tuesday. Until then, I say goodbye.